Hi, this is David Sachs, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. I want to talk about surviving exile and different tools for how we can do it, and also how we can recognize exile, because exile is one of these things that really creeps up on us in a way that is not obvious. I once heard about a lobster that's being boiled in a pot. I guess that's how you cook lobster. And the lobster doesn't really know what's happening, and then it's sort of like it's too late. There's this form of interaction with reality where you don't realize you're caught until after you're caught. By the way, I happen to personally believe that that's what's going on with the legalization of marijuana right now. This is just me talking. And I think that there's a whole generation that are being essentially groomed to be drug addicts and just worth thinking about. So anyway, exile. How do we deal with it? So probably the greatest example of success in exile is Yosef Atzadik. He He's like basically teaching us how to navigate through material wealth and still be successful, still not lose ourselves spiritually. And what's amazing about the test of wealth is that it opens up so many doors to you. You see, when we're impoverished and when the outside society doesn't allow us to interact with them, it's much easier to just continue to be whatever your parents raised you to be. But when you have massive opportunities and every door is open to you and you have the wherewithal to maximize those opportunities, all of a sudden there's a very strong pull against whatever it is you were raised with, and then you can just look for any other opportunities. So Yosef is that example because who would have blamed Yosef in a million years? Remember, when he went into, the, into exile, he was the only Jew in exile. He separated from his family for something like 22 years. Who could have blamed him if he had assimilated? No one in their right mind could have blamed him. And yet somehow Yosef remains not only true to his identity, but becomes a foundation for all future generations. So there are secrets of survival that we can learn from the life of Yosef. So I had a conversation this week with someone and he told me that somehow he's fallen into this kind of business, which is kind of like a, an extension of the business that he's in right now. And this is a pretty young guy, by the way, which is he's making a bourbon factory in Kentucky, <laughs> which is like, like, how do you fall into making a bourbon factory into Kentucky, in Kentucky? But th this is true. I know the guy. So I asked him, I said, I've read about these legendary Kentucky bourbons. And in, in fact, there was even a, a well-written-about theft of, like, these rare bourbons a number of years ago that were stolen. And I know that liquor has become, like, something that people collect now and is fairly expensive. And so I asked him, I said, 
Has, have you been served any of this rare liquor? And he told me, I just recently had a shot of scotch from a bottle of, 90, of Macallan's. If you know anything about scotch, Macallan's is one of the top, top names. Macallan's from 1935. Now that's like, if you know anything, that's like, what? 1935 Macallan's? Like, you can't, you can't even find that. And I asked him, I said, how much would that cost if you had that in a restaurant? And, and he, he Googled what the bottle would cost, and it's, it was something like $14,000 to $30,000, something like that. That's the range for the bottle. So a shot would be at least $1,000, $2,000, at least, if you could find it. So I said to him, how was it? And he said, I don't like scotch, so it wasn't good at all. <laughs> so I, I thought that was fascinating. I thought that that was absolutely fascinating. By the way, I told that story to my son, and then he told me he had just heard a podcast with the actor Matthew McConaughey. And while he was just starting to make it as an actor, he now had a little extra money and he hired this housekeeper and he came home one day and his blue jeans had been ironed. And he was like, this is amazing, ironed blue jeans, I, this is great. And then he put them on and then he realized, I don't like ironed blue jeans. <laughs> so, so, you know, you've got all these luxuries, but you know, here are these sort of like very surprising responses to them. And so I started thinking about it a little bit more. And again, we're still talking about Yosef. And we're still talking about us today. We're talking about how do we survive in exile? The last line of this week's Parsha is that they settled in the land. Because remember, this is when the Jewish people are going down into Egypt as a nation. We're not talking about individuals anymore. We're talking about the Jewish people themselves have now officially gone down into Egypt. And the Medrash says it's not that they, they grabbed the land, so to speak. It's that the land grabbed them. And again, you know, there's this, I think it's 1980s slang, but who's Zooming who? I don't know if you know that expression. <laughs> now Zoom means telecommunicating. But before, it's like, who's working who? That's what it used to mean. You're grabbing the land like the Jews apparently were becoming real estate tycoons. If you want to know the, where... Where Jews as real estate barons, like the source in the Torah for it, it's right here. They were acquiring real estate. But what was really going on? The land was grabbing them. How do you protect against that? Because we're in the throes of that right now. All of us are in the throes of that right now. And it's not just economic. It's cultural as well. There's, there's a word, when I was studying government, it was like a fancy government word, hegemony, or some people pronounce it hegemony, which I don't 
think is the right pronunciation. And they talk about cultural hegemony. What is hegemony? Means that it's basically when you colonize another nation, when you take them over. But it doesn't necessarily mean militarily taking them over. You can basically take over another nation by having them accept your culture. And now you're ruling over them because they have accepted your culture over their culture. That's the land grabbing you. That's what's going on right now. Or it's already gone on. <laughs> you can decide where in the process we're at as a people. So I was thinking about this 1935 bottle of Macallans. And the following question came to me. If you were that person who's already tasted a shot of it, right? Listen carefully. You've already tasted. You already didn't like it. Now someone gives you a choice. What would you prefer? A bottle of 1935 Macallans or a hamburger? <laughs> now let's assume that you actually like hamburgers and this is a good hamburger. And just in case you're trying to be too smart, you can't sell the bottle. <laughs> you can't give it away. This bottle is only for you to drink. Which would you pick? So on one level, this is a very easy question. Well, I don't like this, so I would pick the hamburger. But honestly, would you pick the hamburger? <laughs> would you? Why? Because someone offering you a choice between $15 in one hand and $20,000 in another hand. Do you have the strength to take the $15 and leave the $20,000 on the table? But you say to yourself, but wait, I don't like the bottle of scotch. Well, it's $20,000, but I don't like it. And I do like the hamburger, but it's $20,000. But you can't enjoy that $20,000, which now, brings us to a deeper question. How do you assign value to things in your life? Are you accepting the value proposition that society is putting on things? Or are you deciding on your own value propositions? Now this is where it gets deep. And this is a real tool for navigating the exile. You see, let me tell you something about advertising, okay? Advertising is extremely psychological. So let's say I want to sell a car, right? I've got the new Toyota car. Well, why should they buy my Toyota car? They've got about 50 other choices on the marketplace. Well, what if I cast a beautiful family, a husband and a wife who love each other, and these good-looking kids, right? And I put them in front of the car, and they're going to go someplace. Ah, so you know what? Not only that, but they're so happy and healthy. So now, all of a sudden, I make a car commercial 
and I put a beautiful piece of music behind it. And what is that car now? That car isn't just a choice of one of 50 cars. That choice, if I buy that car, I can be a family man. <laughs> I can have a beautiful, happy wife or a handsome, successful husband. I can have healthy children who are well-behaved and who want to spend time with their parents. And a piece of music that brings a tear to my eyes in 20 seconds. How did they do that? And now all of a sudden, they have succeeded in arousing an emotion inside of me and pinning that emotion to their product. That's advertising in a nutshell. That's how it works. They pick aspirational imagery and they put it on their product and they convince you in this unconscious, very subtle, emotional way that you're not just getting the product, you are getting all of these lifestyle things that go with the product. But let's go even deeper. What they're conditioning you to do in order to sell their product, not to make you a better, happier, more productive citizen, but in order to sell their product, they are trying to make you dream their dreams. And that's when the land grabs you. You're not grabbing the land anymore. The land is grabbing you. That's cultural hegemony. That's when you adopt the culture of the land that you're in, when they can get you to dream their dreams instead of our own dreams. So when you're faced with a hamburger in one hand and a bottle of 1935 McCallans in the other hand, and you know you don't like that because you've already tasted it and you don't want it, and you like hamburgers, what are you battling against? Why is it not just a no-brainer, give me the hamburger and get out of here? Because they're presenting you the dreams of success of the Western world. <laughs> and how can I say no to the dreams of success of the Western world? It's all contained within that bottle of liquor that I don't like. <laughs> so we've got to assign values. We've got to start asking ourselves, what makes me happy? What makes me most satisfied? What makes me the best version of me? What allows my soul to blossom and to flourish? And there's certain things of absolute inherent value. Inherent value. And if we're going to build a foundation for survival, we have to be able to appreciate these things of inherent value. Shabbos, Torah, mitzvahs, community, transcendence, wholesomeness, purity. These are the things that make our soul sing, make our soul blossom. Reb Shlomo said that when God gave us the Torah at Mount Sinai, that he allowed us to dream his dreams 
and to pray his prayers. That's what we got with the Torah. The ability to dream God's dreams and pray God's prayers. To be in ultimate harmony with the universe, with God, and with our own souls. So these are tools for how to deal with the outside forces, with the outside forces of exile. And I want to give you a couple of tools to deal with the inside forces of exile as well. And before we get into sort of those in more detail, I just want to just touch on one thing, because to me this is very, very moving and, and, and important that all of us have the ability to do this in our daily lives. So what am I referring to? Well, remember, Yosef is called Yosef at Sadiq, and that means Yosef, the, the righteous one, the holy one. And to have like an extra name or an adjective or an honorific appended to your name is very unusual in the Torah. We have Avraham Avinu, we have Moshe Rabbeinu, but for the most part, you, you don't really find that. And we're talking about the greatest people who have ever lived. So if Yosef is called Yosef Hatzadik, the Tzadik, then for sure we've got to know, like, what did he have? Well, with that in mind, isn't it interesting, and I'll give you the answer to the question before I, I, I ask the question, Yosef, of everyone in the entire Torah, is the one who cries the most. So, so here's the question. Who cries the most in the entire Torah? You're right. <laughs> it's Yosef. They mention it more times than anybody. So, so I think that there's for sure a very clear connection between Yosef's tears and Yosef's righteousness. So what can we learn about Yosef's tears? What can we learn about the power of tears in general? And, you know, if you, if you kind of want to get a little bit scientific and you want to look in the mirror, you can kind of stretch out your lower eyelid in front of the mirror. And if you look, you'll see in the corner of your eyelid, close to the bridge of your nose, you will see a little hole. That's called a tear duct. We're created with these tear ducts. So now you can ask one of two questions. One is, well, why do we have it? So one answer is, well, because we cry and we need a place for the tears to escape. So that would be sort of like the more sort of medical answer to that question. But I think it's deeper than that. I think that God gives us tear ducts because he wants us to cry. So in other words, the tears of Yosef, the fact that we're created with tear ducts is because God wants our tears. Now, what, why, why does that mean that God wants us to be miserable? Well, first of all, everybody knows that there are a lot of reasons why people cry. In fact, someone told me yesterday something absolutely fascinating. There's an artist, I forgot the person's I forgot the artist's name, but they did a project called, listen to me, this is, so, this is poetry. You ready for the title? The Topology of Tears. And they took different types of tears from people, right? Tears of sadness, tears of joy. And they analyzed these tears and they were different tears. Isn't that interesting? that according to the emotion that they stemmed from, 
that the DNA, so to speak, I'm using that term loosely right now, but that the, the, the molecular composition of these tears reflected the different ways that they were created. So you have different types of tears. But what, why are tears so powerful? And because tears are emblematic of a quantum jump in emotion. And in that way, I think that tears can be compared to song. So the connection might not be so obvious, but, but let me just tell you why they seem very comparable to me. Do you know, it says that at one point in Jewish history, we were one song away from Mashiach coming. Do you know that? It, it says that in the Gomorrah itself. King Chizkiyahu, who was one of these people throughout history who could have been the Mashiach, he experienced, the Jewish people experienced a very great miracle. It's not, it's not as well known or discussed as it should be because it, was, it could have been the, the, the apocalyptic war, the war of Gogu Magog. That's what the Gomorrah says. This could have been the final, final war. What was it? King Sencherev, who was one of the great ancient kings, had vanquished most of the Jewish people. You know, when we talk about the 10 lost tribes of Israel, that's because of Sencherev. There was a northern Israel and a southern Israel. Unfortunately, the Jewish people had issues, and we had split into two kingdoms. And in the northern kingdom, there were 10 tribes. And in the southern kingdom, that's where the holy temple was, the base of Migdash was. And Sancherev came in and he conquered northern Israel. So when we talk about the 10 lost tribes of Israel, that's what we're talking about. This event, this military event. And Sancherev innovated something, which was to be duplicated by military generals throughout history, which is he observed that people who are in their homeland fight harder to defend their homeland which is very annoying to empire builders. So he thought, oh, I know. Instead of conquering their land and then just regularly putting down revolutions, what if I took all the people and scattered them around the world and brought other people in to their homeland? Now all of a sudden they don't have such a vested interest in fighting to save their homeland anymore. Now I'm going to have a much more stable empire. That was Sencherib's Chiddush, his idea. So he took the 10 tribes of Israel and he scattered them around the world. And that's how we get the 10 lost tribes of Israel. Now listen to this. There's a river that he put them behind. This is a, this is a legend of the Jewish people. And people have tried to find this river. And what's so interesting about this river Six days a week, it flows with lava. Like it's impossible to cross this river. One day a week, the waters are calm, but that's on Shabbos, and you can't cross a river on Shabbos. <laughs> and so, so this, this legend has, has existed among the Jewish people for like a really long time. Not only that, but, but a subject for a movie that, 
I would like to do sometime, one day, or someone should do it anyway, is that in history, there was, there was someone named David Ruveni. And all of a sudden, when the Jews were super oppressed, this was around, I don't know, approximately the 1400s, give or take a hundred years or so. This magnificent Jew shows up on a big white horse with the flag of Ruvain. And it's sort of like the Jews were like poor and like, you know, just like, you know, they, they couldn't, they were in the ghetto, they couldn't get out of the ghetto and everything like that. And that this magnificent Jew shows up on this big white horse like royalty. And he said, I crossed from the other side of this river. The Sabaton River, that was the name of it. Named after the Sabbath because it stopped flowing on Shabbos. And he was so received as a folk hero among all the Jews. This is a historical event. This is documented. That he even met with the Pope. Now the Pope at that point was like the king of the world. The Pope was so powerful that he could decide who could be king in other countries. Like everyone was under the thumb of the Pope. So, so he was really seen as the redeemer of the Jewish people. Anyway, this worked so well that not so long afterwards, someone showed up from the tribe of Gad. <laughs> right? It's sort of like, hey, I can do this. I can find a white horse someplace. <laughs> Get a haircut, work out, <laughs> you know? So, and he was also received as royalty. But anyway, these are interesting events from Jewish history. But the point is, is that Sennacherib conquered the ten tribes and exiled them. And that left just basically where the king was and the Levium, the Kahanim, you know, tribe of Judah, maybe a little bit of Binyamin was, was down there in the southern kingdom. And the entire mass army of Sennacherib was amassed to finish off the Jews. He had already done the, the, the greater part of the job. And at midnight on Pesach night, a plague came and wiped them all out. One of the greatest miracles in the history of the Jewish people we, we just mentioned it in passing, Pesach night, by the way, in one of the songs at the end of the Seder. Kiahu, the great king of Israel, didn't sing, didn't sing to mark this miracle. And because he didn't sing, the Gomorrah says Mashiach didn't come, otherwise Mashiach would have come at that moment. That would have been the great apocalyptic last war, and that would have been it. So... So I've seen some commentaries on this, and the one that I thought was especially interesting, I forgot who said it, but that there was so much love and appreciation and awe, tremendous awe of God, like, like splitting of the Red Sea level awe of God that was in the air. And it needed just to be lifted up by the king. And that the power of song is such that it would have just lifted up all this energy to the next quantum level. And that would have been the redemption. So tears, getting back to the tears and the tears of Yosef, 
Tears are very similar, I think. Tears have this ability to take whatever, wherever you're at and to lift it a whole quantum level. Now, why am I saying that? Because we have a teaching that the gates of prayers are closed, but never to tears. So in other words, how is it that tears have the ability to open up locked gates of prayer? But they do. This is what our rabbis teach us. Which means, and now let's get poetic about it, let's have a cool visual now. That means that these tears running down your cheek are actually keys. And they're not just keys. They're keys with wings. Your tears are keys with wings on them that fly up and open up gates. And now here's the reason why I'm telling you all this. Because, you know, today everyone's got to be a Rebbe. Today everybody's got to be a Rebbe. And so we have to use our tears and we have to know to use our tears. In other words, when you cry, you've got keys. How are you using your keys? Use your keys to bring down blessings for other people. And I always tell you there are five categories that you have to be mindful of whenever you get inspired. There are people who need refuah, they need healing. There are people who need shaduchim, they need husbands and wives. There are people who are praying for children and for, as we say, Yiddish anachis, that the children that they have should go on the proper path. There are people who need cash money. They need work. They need, they need jobs. And we need Mashiach. So these are the five categories. And you should have lists of people in all these categories that at a moment's notice, you can just rattle them off. Anytime you feel in your life that the gates are open, You've got to go down your list in these categories and whatever other categories that you want to add. And you've got to be able to do that. But especially when you cry, use your tears. Use your tears on behalf of the world, of your family, of your friends, for yourself. Remember, one of the great stories that I heard from Reb Shlomo and then God willing to tell you another story. I don't remember the name of this Rebbe, but it was like the middle of the night and he's learning, you know, in the base medrash, it's just him and his gabai, right? And, his gab- and, and all of a sudden he feels it. He, he, he tells his gabai, he says, the gates are open right now. I can, I, I, I've got the ability to, to bring down blessings and, and to have prayers answered. Go, go, go wake people up. Bring them here, right now. Now is the time. The gates are open. And the Gabbai goes and he goes and, and it's the middle of the night and he's banging on people's like windows. He's banging on people's doors. No one came. The next day, the, the, the Rebbe's heartbroken. He, he says to his Gabbai, well, what happened? The gates were open. He says, Rebbe, I tried. I banged on people's windows. I banged on people's doors. Nobody came. He said, but, but why didn't you come? I mean, to me, this is a lesson forever. You know, when, 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 you're, when you're davening, 
Like there are a lot of people, there, there are two categories, right? One category is the people who forget about everybody else and they're only praying for themselves. But there are also a lot of people who are praying for everybody else and they forget about themselves. So don't, don't, don't forget about yourself, right? Like, like the Rebbe said, yeah, but why didn't you come? Right? Remember to fold yourself in. And then if you want to fold yourself in at the end, there's a mila. There's a mila. It's, it's, a, it's an additional blessing for a person that, that they pray for other people's needs first and then themselves. But don't, don't forget about yourself. Now I want to tell you one more story on this subject. And the Chos of Lublin was one of the greatest Hasidic masters. And one of his Talmidim was Reb Simcha Bunim of Pshisk, who would later go on to be the, the Rebbe of the Kutzka Rebbe and the, and the Ger Rebbe and the Vorka Rebbe and the Alexander Rebbe. It was like this unbelievable moment in Jewish history where you had this incredible cluster. This is what a lot of people call Polish Hasidus. Right? Just this amazing time where you had like mountaintops all, all gathered together. And so, and this story, by the way, it's, it's written in, in this book, Lamed Vav. If, if, if you don't have Lamed Vav, I, I, I highly recommend it. It's a, it's a collection of Reb Shlomo's stories, but that also includes some, some Torahs that, that, that he set over as well, and they're combined with the stories. It's a very, very well done book. Lamed Vav, it's called. So, so he writes that on Yom Kippur, the Chose, who could see really from one side of the world to the other, and he could see past lives, future lives. I heard the story about the Chose that I always liked, which is they, they said that he could read your forehead, like it was written on your forehead information about your soul. And there was someone who wanted to see the Chose, but he was embarrassed. I guess he had done something that he was ashamed of or whatever it was. So he walked in to see the Chose with his hand covering his forehead. And the Chose said, I can see. Do you think Hashem can see? You're laughing, but it's heartbreaking. So, so, the Chosa and Yom Kippur could see like what year people were going to have. And Reb Shlomo says that if the Chosa felt as though the person could deal with it, he would share it with them. So he goes up to the Chabon of Pshisk and he says, you know what? This is not your year money-wise. Like, <clears throat> it's going down. Like, like, it's zero. Zero for you. Okay? So, Shiska Rebbe was able to deal with that, you know, just accepted it. He went back to, he was very talented in so many different areas. He was a super genius, in addition to being a great Rebbe himself. Latin, chemistry, phar, pharmacology, he was, he, he was a, a, a true genius. He opens up his, he had a, a, a successful pharmacy. He sees right at the beginning, it's going down. He says, why should I stick around while it just goes to zero? Forget it. He closes up shop. He gives money to his wife and he checks into a hotel in Warsaw, 
that was like, you know, one of his favorite hotels. And he figures, my time is more productively spent sitting and learning. So he's certainly sitting and learning. He's going there. It's going on for weeks. And Reb Shlomo points out that, you know, if you don't have any money, people want to collect the bills right away. But if you do have money, people think you have money, so they're not so afraid, so that they're very lenient in terms of collecting. So he's, he's in this hotel for weeks already. No one's asking him for, to pay the bill. Finally, someone says, you know, <laughs> it's, it's been a number of weeks. It's time to pay the bill. Slips a little note under the door, and whatever it is, he, he doesn't pay, continues to do what, is, what he's doing, gets another note. You know, sir, the time has come to pay. He, and then he gets another note, and, it's, and, and now they're serious. They say, we're collecting at 5 p.m. today, and if you don't have the money, essentially, you know, they're going to call the police. I don't know that they said that, but that was a strong implication. So now he's really, the Peshiska Rebbe is really davening. He's really, really davening. And at, in the afternoon, before that time, like at around 1.30, there's a knock at the door. And he's like, oh no, they're early, and I don't have any money. He opens up the door, and there's a very well-dressed person there. And it's not, it's not someone from the hotel. And he has a message. You know, back in the day, if you, if you were very wealthy, you didn't send... Like, this is how you sent a telegram. You had people working for you, and they delivered messages for you, handwritten messages. He opens up the message, and it's from Madame Temerov. Now, she was really one of the great people at that time. She owned forests, and wood was big money back then, timber. So, and she was a great philanthropist. In fact, she really like bankrolled this, this school, like this whole line of Hasidus, like really was able to kind of sustain itself in large part because of her tremendous tzedakah that she gave. And she says, the message says, just my luck, I heard you're in town and I want to meet with you. I have an accountant and he can't even add any numbers up, and I know that you are a top mine. I want you to work with, for me. I'm offering you a job. So it seems like his prayers are being answered, that this is unbelievable, right? Like the salvation is coming at the right moment. He takes a pen and he writes back. He goes, I'm not interested in accepting this job unless you make me a partner, and gives the, gives the card back to the person. So... Not so long after that, there's another knock at the door. And he's like, oh no. The, the jig is up. He opens up the door. It's Madame Tamarov herself. And she's like, what chutzpah? <laughs> I can't believe that you wrote back such a thing to me. I needed to see you in person to see if you're everything everyone says you are. And now, just taking one look at you, I can see that's the case. And so, you know what? I'm making you my partner. So, she pays his bill. He's saved. He goes back to the Chos of Lublin. 
And this is the point of the whole story. <laughs> this is the reason why I'm telling you this story. And the Chosa says to him, you see, if you know how to pray, you're never bankrupt. And then he says to him, but let me ask you something. Where did you get the strength to ask to be a partner? Here she had saved you. Where did you get that strength? And now listen to this. Here's the whole point. The Pshiska Rebbe says back to the Chose, I saw that God was opening up the gates of salvation. And so I saw that there was an opportunity to open them, open them up even further. And that's a lesson to all of us. And that's what I'm telling you about your tears. When, you're te when you cry, the gates of salvation are opening. And then you have, a, you have an opportunity at that moment to open them up even further. By praying for everybody else. Don't forget that teaching. Don't forget that teaching. When you feel as though the gates are opening, and intuitively speaking, you'll know in your kishkas, so to speak, you'll know in your insides, when you feel as though the gates are opening, that's your opportunity to open them up even further, to pray even more prayers. Right, a related teaching, but on the subject. As Reb Shlomo said, when the gates are open, you gotta go through. Right? But now we're adding to that. When the gates are open, you've got to open them up even wider. So this is one of the things that we learn about Yosef. But I want to go now into this idea of surviving in exile. And after Yosef reveals himself, he gives presents to his brothers and remember, why did this whole thing start to begin with? Because Yosef was lifted up and favored above the, of the, of the other brothers. And what does Yosef do? He gives them all clothing, and he gives them all money. And to Binyamin, he gives five times the amount of clothing and five times the amount of money. And if you're like watching at that moment, the brothers have just gotten together and now it looks like Yosef is making the exact same mistake that Yaakov made by lifting up Yosef above the other brothers. Now Yosef is lifting up Binyamin above the other brothers. And you're like, no, stop, don't do it. But I think that this was very much by design. I think Yosef wanted to see, are the other brothers really in a place of all being together? In other words, can we be one when one person among our community or in our family or in our group of friends, whatever it is, is lifted up above the others? Can we celebrate that person's success or are we err? Because if you're err, then you're mamish in exile. You are mamish in exile. As Reb Shlomo says, if you can't have joy for another person's joy, you don't know what joy is. We're one soul. Every victory for another person is a victory for us. We're one soul. When someone has something nice happen to them, it's not coming out of your pocket. 
the appropriate reaction is simcha, is happiness. So now I want to go a little bit further with that idea, another isotope, because in Perkei Avos it says there are certain things that take us out of this world, meaning just kill us, basically. One of them is jealousy. Another one is anger. So let's talk about anger for a moment, because this is another way that we completely become exiled from ourselves. The Radomsker asks a great question and gives a phenomenal answer. So I'm going to ask you the question. A lot of people have this question, but I'm going to just spell it out. And I'm going to give you two classic answers to this question. And they're kind of satisfying, but to be perfectly honest, they're kind of unsatisfying at the same time. So here's the question. How could it be that none of the brothers recognized Yosef? <laughs> right? Did you ever wonder about this? So I'm going to give you the classic answer, okay? When he was first sold into slavery, he was young and he didn't have a beard. Now he had a full beard and he was older, and so the brothers didn't recognize him. Satisfied? <laughs> well, kind of. I don't know. I mean, I, I could see how that would be true. All right, am I satisfied by that? I don't know that I'm satisfied by that. Okay, now listen to the Radomskers question, because if you were satisfied a moment ago, after you hear this, it's going to be very hard to be satisfied by that answer. The Radomsker says like this, a tzaddik can recognize the presence of another tzaddik. So given the fact that all the brothers were tzaddikim, how is it possible that they're standing in front of one of the greatest tzaddikim that ever lived, and they don't recognize him. Right now, we're, like, we're not talking about physicality at all. Now, now we're in, in, in spiritual land. Here, let me put it to you in my words, okay? Imagine you've got a Geiger counter, and you're standing in front of Chernobyl. <laughs> that Geiger counter is going to be going crazy, right? So here you have the brothers who are all tzaddikim standing in front of one of the greatest tzaddikim that's ever lived, and you're telling me that their Geiger counter wasn't going off? How is that possible? This is the question of the Radomsker Rebbe. Listen to his answer. His answer is, his answer is devastating. He says, you know why they didn't recognize him? Because Yosef put a mask of anger in front of him. He put on a mask of anger. Now, let's unpack that for a moment. I heard from Reb Shlomo in the name of Rebbe Nachman that really you should be able to hear the sound of a monkey in China. And do you know the reason why you don't? Why we don't? Because of all of the anger in the world. An amazing answer. That means that anger is this, this, this cloud of dissonance, this cloud of cacophony that blocks out everything. That we can't hear things because there's so much anger in the world. So with that in mind, Yosef puts a mask of anger in front of him and so to speak, it jammed the radar of the brothers. They couldn't pick up on what's going on with Yosef because they couldn't penetrate through this barrier that anger is. 
And I heard from Reb Shlomo that one of the main avodas, one of the main things that we have to do in our life in terms of our service of God is to cleanse our heart of anger. And that includes jealousy as well. Because jealousy is just a different isotope of anger. To cleanse our hearts of it. Now listen to this. I also heard in the name of Rabbi Nachman the following that there's certain tzaddikim in the world who are like hidden. And the reason why they're hidden is because there's so much anger in the world. And intuitively they sense this anger and it causes them to hide and not to emerge. And to the extent that we can clear up the anger in the world by getting it, we, remember with all these things you have to start with yourself. Right? Like, I'm so angry that you're angry. <laughs> no, no. That's not how to do it. First, you get rid of the anger in your own heart. Right? It's like Reb Shlomo says, one of the greatest teachings. By Pesach, you know, every nation, he says, is pointing to every other nation and saying, you're doing this and you're doing that. But you know what we do among the Jewish people by Pesach? First, we clean our own house. First you clean your own house. First you get rid of all the chametz, all the spiritual impurity from your own house. Then after that, you can proceed to the next steps. But first we, we begin with ourselves. So if we can cleanse our heart of anger, if we can get rid of some of the anger in the world, one of the domino effects of that is that these tzaddikim who are in the world are going to come out and they're going to blossom. You know, it's almost like Lahavdil, it's almost like Groundhog Day, where the groundhog comes and he takes a look and he decides whether he can come out or whether he has to go back into hiding. You know, it's a little bit, it's a little bit like that. To the extent that there's less anger in the world, that tzaddikim that are waiting, but are like a little bit like, it's not their time yet because, because there's too much anger. To the extent that we can cleanse the world of anger, we're going to see a changed world. There are going to be so many domino effects. And this is one of them, one that we may not have thought of that Rabbi Nachman teaches us about. So, so we've got to decide what's valuable. And can I tell you something? If you have the choice of a vacation in, ha in, in, in Hawaii, and there's nothing wrong with that, by the way, right? If you can do it, go for it. But if you, if, but it doesn't have to be your dream. It can be nice, it can be good, you can enjoy it. But let's kind of sculpt our minds and sculpt our ambitions, sculpt our aspirations, sculpt our souls so that we can be like just more refined, more beautiful creations. And really one of the things that in sculpting yourself is where are you putting your highest aspirations? Are they buried someplace? Or is that something that when someone looks at you, it's evident from just looking at you what your dreams are.
You know, I don't have long payas. By the way, to have payas halachically, you just have to have it over that, that bone, that, that cheekbone, right? As long as it's below there, halachically it's called payas. But Reb Shlomo said, what is really, what is payas? Why do people grow out payas? Because payas is the connection between the mind and the heart. Payas is the connection between the mind and the heart. And we don't want to sever that connection between the mind and the heart. And so some people just, they grow it out like that. And I remember, and I'll just end with this. I remember when Reb Shlomo took the Hevra to Poland. I actually got invited on that trip, but I didn't go, you know, sadly. I remember I saw a transcript from the very first concert that he gave. And you know what he said to the Poles that were there? The, the audience was mostly non-Jewish. And who knows what these Poles were doing during World War II, right? They came to see Reb Shlomo in concert. He told them, he began by saying this. He told them a Baal Shem Tov story. And he said, remember, like, what's going through Reb Shlomo's mind? He's come to Poland, right? And he's giving a concert before people. Who knows what, what their responsibility during World War II was? And he says, the Baal Shem Tov had a minion of thieves. Right? That's who he davened with. And people asked him, why are you davening with these people? And he said, because I saw that the gates of prayer were closed and I needed some people to pick open the lock. <laughs> That's how he began his concert in Poland. That interesting, of all the stories that could have come to him, that's how he began it. So there was one person on this trip who had very long payas. And he told Rip Shlomo, you know, people give me flack, they give me grief over my long payas. And Rip Shlomo said to him, you tell them where I go, I need long payas. You know, so maybe, maybe you have short payas, maybe you have long payas. But I'm not really talking about payas right now. I'm talking about when someone looks at you, do they see, just from looking at you, what's most important to you? Because if your heart is really on fire, they will be able to see. And then we can be lights to other people as a way out of this exile. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them. <laughs>